In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. This, on our left, is the original Bank of Montreal. We're in a back lane in old Montreal. It's the part of the city where you might swear you were in Paris or Vienna if you didn't know better. This long, narrow alleyway runs between two buildings. It's called Fortifications Lane, which seems perfect. That's why they have that's that, that aerial passageway transforming the lane into a tunnel. Our tour guide is Bob Cote, former head of the Montreal Police Bomb Squad. There's some construction work going on. Courier trucks are coming and going. They're likely oblivious to the significance of this spot. The same scenario. It was a nice Saturday night in July. Lots of people around. Everything is blocked up. They're waiting for the guest of honor. Me. Bob is describing the early hours of July 12, 1970. Volkswagen was exactly where this truck is now. He'd gotten the call that day because of a remarkable discovery in this very laneway. A Volkswagen Beetle, the friendliest, most unthreatening car I can imagine, rigged for catastrophe. He said, that's a stolen car. The first constable on the scene sat in the driver's seat then ear tick, 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 tick from uh, under, under the passenger seat to the boat. And in I come. That ticking was coming from the largest homemade bomb ever dismantled in Canada. There was a case of dynamite, 50 pounds. Wow. Another case uh, behind the driver's seat, 50 more pounds. 20 pounds for the, for the bomb itself, plus a few loose sticks here and there for 130, 140, 150 pounds of dynamite. Our first reaction was to laugh. We were tired. So we said, hey, wow, we're laughing like fools. Because we had- Later, when we get back to his home, Bob pulls out a copy of the Montreal Gazette with a dramatic picture on the cover. It shows the estimated blast radius of a 150-pound bomb. It would have taken out the better part of a city block. And though Bob could laugh in the moment, the stress and the demands of the job were already taking a toll on him and his family. For seven years, he'd ridden wave after wave of terror, calls at all hours of the night and day, calls for him to risk life and limb in the name of public safety. And during that time, one period stands out, a 10-month stretch where Bob Cote would find himself in pursuit of his most prolific adversary. A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorism? The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. That they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. 
I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Chapter 5, The Bomber. Spending time with Bob Cote, you get the feeling he would never tire of telling tales of his life as a cop, and that he would never run out of stories to tell. He's illuminated murky corners of the FLQ story for me, brought them to life with vivid and frank recollections. But the other side of the story was always a bit shadowy, and the one man who was responsible for the most bombs and the most nerve-wracking late-night calls for Bob Cote, well, he's been like a ghost in this story. His name is Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, and he's hardly spoken publicly about his brief career as a terrorist, which is understandable. Over the years, Geoffroy was more than once approached by reporters, but politely declined. So as badly as I wanted to hear his story, I didn't have much hope that he would want anything to do with us. But you gotta try, right? In February, my producer, Francis, reached out to him. It was a Hail Mary. We had some other interviews lined up in Montreal a month later. Maybe he'd be willing to meet with us. The conversation lasted for several minutes. Geoffroy asked a number of questions about our intentions, about our research. He made no commitment, but he suggested we call once we get to town. I was fully expecting this to be our last contact with Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, that he would just stop answering the phone. But I was wrong. Oui, bonjour. Est-ce que je pourrais parler à Monsieur Geoffroy, s'il vous plaît? And by early March, we were sitting at his kitchen table in Terban, just outside Montreal. It's a modest apartment in a three-story walk-up complex near the highway. He's a small man with pale skin and a trace of red in his thinning hair. He's in his 70s now, but he's slim and he looks fit. He has questions for me about life in Vancouver, about environmental politics in my home province. Before he became the FLQ's busiest bomber, before he spent more than a decade in prison, Pierre-Paul Geoffroy was just a middle-class kid from the suburbs of Montreal. He grew up in Berthierville, then a little town about an hour north of Montreal. For a time, Geoffroy went to a private Catholic boarding school. His dad, Maurice, was secretary-treasurer of the local school commission. His father had progressive ideas and he got involved in politics as an organizer for the Liberal Party. Now, for some FLQ members, their radicalism seems to be rooted in a reaction to family life, bitterness about working-class conditions or conflict with their more conservative parents. But for Geoffroy, you get the sense that his ideology flourished at home. The house was a gathering place for political talk. And Geoffroy was coming of age just as the Quebec independence movement was coming into its own. He remembers hearing about the separatist party, the RIN, hearing them talk about a future for a free, independent Quebec. He was still in high school when he decided to join. 
After graduation, he trained to be a printer, but he never took up the trade. Instead, he enrolled at Collège Saint-Marie and studied political science. Politics and culture were becoming the center of his life. He opened a boîte à chansons. There were these intimate little coffee house type spaces where a new generation of Quebecois songwriters were cutting their teeth. Singers like Raymond Levesque, whose 1967 song Bozo les culottes is a tribute to the FLQ. It tells the tale of a hapless Quebecois security guard who comes to an awakening about Anglo oppression. That verse, directly and unpoetically translated, says, He stole dynamite. Then, in a neighborhood full of hypocrites, he blew up a monument in memory of the conquerors. So all in all, it was an exciting moment of cultural and political awakening, and Pierre-Paul Geoffroy wanted to be a part of it. But there were setbacks, too. In the 1966 provincial election, the right-wing Union Nationale came back to power. The RIN failed to elect a single candidate. For Geoffroy, that was a bitter loss. And the more he thought about it, the more he started to question the possibilities of the democratic path. He read Franz Fanon, Che Guevara, Marx, and he began to embrace their philosophies. And he came to see the FLQ as the best detonator, that's his word, not mine, for those ideas, a path to an independent Quebec built on anti-capitalist values. But there was a hitch. By 1968, when he finally resolved to join, the FLQ was kind of a mess. The Vallière-Gagnon cell was in jail, and Pierre Vallière, the intellectual leader of the FLQ, was on trial. So Geoffroy tried to create his own independent group. They'd act in conjunction with another cell from the south shore of Montreal. At first, he called the new cell the Quebec Workers' Liberation Front. The FLQ sounded too nationalist for their taste. They quickly abandoned that idea. The FLQ had name recognition by then. It would be a waste not to capitalize on it. But labor issues were front and center for the new cell, and there was plenty of labor unrest in Quebec at the time. On February 27, 1968, Geoffroy attended one of the most violent demonstrations in Quebec labor history. Several thousand people marched in support of workers at the 7-Up bottling plant. The conflict had dragged on for months. The protesters came from a cross-section of leftist and separatist politics. Even future Quebec Premier René Lévesque took part. Some demonstrators waved red flags and chanted, Révolution, Révolution. 
They were met with strong police presence, and things got ugly quickly. Molotov cocktails were hurled at the building, nearly starting a fire. Dozens of people were injured, and dozens of people were arrested. Geoffroy himself was clubbed and hauled off by the police. As he tells us, the police played rough. Protesters were regularly beaten. A former FLQ member claims he became sterile after being kicked in the balls at that protest, but I've found no independent verification on that. That nasty experience at the 7-Up protest galvanized Geoffroy and gave him the nerve to consider direct action. He says it helped him pick his first target, too. At some point around this time, Geoffroy met a guy named Mario Bachan. He remembers Bachan as a big talker. They love talking politics together. And Bashan was persuasive, quick on his feet. They became good friends. Bashan played a key role in Geoffroy's education and his radicalization. It was from Bashan that Geoffroy first got his hands on copies of La Cognée. That's the official publication of the FLQ. And believe it or not, that's how he learned how to make bombs. It really was as simple as that. Apart from providing space for ideological essays and revolutionary calls to action, Lacanier was a how-to guide for budding radicals. As Geoffroy points out, bomb-making is very dangerous. You risk your life every time you put one together. But it's not complicated. He's right. All you need are some wires and a cheap clock. FLQ bombers got theirs from the same place where Bob Cote got his wire cutters at the same low price of a buck twenty-five. And of course, you need dynamite. You really need the dynamite. By this point in the series, you may have already asked yourself. Where the hell were these guys getting all that dynamite from anyway? Because the FLQ went through a lot of it over the years. As a bomb technician, Bob Cote was keeping track. In seven days, we knew they had close to one ton to one thousand pounds of dynamite, and we recovered seven hundred pounds of it, three hundred in the form of bombs. The rest was seized. The rest blew up. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds of lethal explosives. Of course, you don't just walk into a hardware store and buy a box of high explosives. Today, you need a license, which involves a screening process. And even if you qualify to purchase and use explosives, there's strict regulation about how you transport and store the stuff. But Montreal in the '60s was a very different world. You didn't have to look too hard to find it. For starters, as Bob Cote explains, there was a lot of legitimate need for dynamite at the time. Montreal was a huge construction site. We were building the subway, expo, and all the big buildings that you, that you see in downtown Montreal. In this old footage, you can see some of the dynamite being put to work on the Expo 67 site. Stop you! 
They were taking rock blasted for the subway and dumping it into the St. Lawrence River to create the islands that would become home to the World's Fair. Montreal is a big rock and huge quantities of dynamite were required at a time when the rules on conservation of dynamite were very lax. I read at least one account of FLQ members lowering children on ropes into the metro tunnels to retrieve dynamite. Pierre-Paul Geoffroy was one of those young talents that Bob Cote refers to. As he explained it to me, you didn't have to go to Mission Impossible lengths to get your hands on it. He says when they wanted to stock up, they headed to Laval, a suburb north of Montreal. They knew of a quarry there where dynamite work was happening. The dynamite was kept in a small shed. The detonators in another one. All they had to do was load it in the car. Even all these years later, Geoffroy seems incredulous at the easy availability of explosives. It wasn't until 1969, and only after years of pleading from law enforcement, that Quebec tightened up that lax regulation. One of the lasting legacies of the FLQ. <laughs> So anyway, by May 11th, thanks to a visit to that quarry in Laval, Geoffroy had enough dynamite to supply a year's worth of bombing. He and his cell set the plan in motion. Geoffroy and a fellow FLQer arrive at the 7-Up factory just after midnight. Along with the dynamite bomb, they have a flashlight filled with black powder an improvised pipe bomb. They set it all near the back of the building where it was least likely to hurt anyone. As you can imagine, Geoffroy is nervous. The first time, he says, you don't know if the bomb is going to blow up in your hands. It's a delicate connection to make between the dynamite, the clock, and the detonator. And you're doing it all on location. Once it's armed and in place, they call the local radio station, CKAC, to send out a warning. Then they send a communique. I know you were expecting to hear an earth-shaking explosion here, but no. Word reached police and they disarmed the bomb in time which in Geoffroy's mind made the mission a great success. It made the news the next day. Their bomb had drawn attention to the cause of the 7-Up workers. The goal was not to destroy the factory or to hurt anyone, just to scare the employer. And it worked. In the weeks and months that followed, Geoffroy and his cell would find more targets. The bombs would get bigger. And the cycle was repeated. Remarkably, nobody died as a result of Geoffroy's bombs. They wanted to avoid making victims, he says, because he knew that would not help the cause. 
ce temps-là. Fait que c'était dangereux pour nous-mêmes, tu sais. There was a rationale and a sense of morality about the way he was planning his terrorist attacks, but some of it was just plain crazy. None of the group had cars, so they transported their bombs in bags or in their hands on the bus or on the subway. He laughs about it now, but part of him also knows that what he did was dangerously foolish. By September, Geoffroy had dropped out of school. Full-time job? <laughs> he relied on student loans and bursaries to get by. He was thrifty, and the bank of mom and pop helped pay the rent as well. At one point, Geoffroy planted a device that exploded near the Bordeaux jail. It was a show of support for Pierre Vallière and Charles Gagnon. The two FLQ members were imprisoned there and waging a hunger strike. A week later, an explosive device was discovered at the base of a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first prime minister. This was in Dominion Square. And there were more bombs targeting companies and organizations with labor trouble. By early 1969, when a bomb exploded at the Queen's printer on St. Catherine Street, the threat of bombs was just a part of daily life in Montreal. The bombing attracted a small crowd, but Montrealers are fairly blasé about these things. Three ladies working next door were more impressed. Well, what did you hear, ladies? The bomb went off and it went like a shock. It goes like a shock through your body. Did you the feel the place off. shake? Yes, I felt yes. the floor shake a bit. Before was shaking quite a bit. What did you think? Eh? I bombed. said to myself, we are going to be bombed and let's get out of this shop fast. Did you get out? Yes, we did. Facing the interviewer, the three women look undeterred. What do you think is the answer to all this bombing? I mean, who's doing I, it? I wish I knew the answer and I'd try to do something about it. But they're not going to gain anything by it because we're all going to fight back. As the fear of the bombs grew, Bob Cote became the face of the fight against Geoffroy's FLQ. Here he is in early 1969, speaking with local media. Well, dismantling a bomb is not something that you get used to, uh, no matter how many cases you may have handled. And also, you have to watch uh, yourself so that you don't become overconfident. Any close calls in the last year and a couple of months? Well, the closest one, uh, I would say, was one in November in the downtown store. Uh, we found out after the bomb was dismantled that it would have gone off within five minutes. And right in the middle of the interview, the phone rings. There's a bomb in a mailbox. So Bob and the reporter take their conversation on the road. We make the best with what we have. We make the best of the situation. And so far, we, we realize that we have been more than lucky. Uh, but we, we also realize that our chance may break any day. In public, Bob Cote cast a reassuring figure, confident, heroic even. But he carried the stress of the job home with him. Bob's wife, Pierrette, was his personal stenographer. She woke with every call, waited up for him, and then wrote detailed field reports for him when he came home. She was also carrying twins. It was their first pregnancy. She was just a month away from her due date when that bombing at Eaton's happened. 
That's the downtown store that Bob mentions in that interview. It was all beginning to take a toll, and the worst was yet to come. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Daytime bombings had never really been a thing for the FLQ. They wanted to make symbolic statements, and they mostly agreed that killing people wasn't the way to do it. So most bombs were set to detonate at 4 a.m. There were two exceptions. The first was the bomb that Bob Cote dismantled with only minutes to spare at Eaton's in November 1968. The next daylight bomb was less than two months later, and it was more than a scare. By February 1969, Pierre-Paul Geoffroy felt the stakes were higher than they'd ever been, and he knew the police were looking for him. He was running out of time to make a statement, so this was going to be his masterpiece. He'd chosen the ultimate symbol of capitalism as his target. It's February 13, 1969. It's coming up on closing time at the Montreal Stock Exchange, so it's crowded. Visitors love watching the chaos of the final hour of trading. Between the gallery and the trading floor, there are a few hundred people milling about. Geoffroy has arrived by metro about 30 minutes before closing time at the exchange. He's carrying a black fiberglass briefcase. And in it is a bomb. Six sticks of dynamite, each weighing two pounds. He's pretty sure he stands out with his beard and mustache. And you have to remember that people were scared and suspicious then. There'd been so many bombings. But he makes his way into the building anyway. He runs into a group of people as he steps off the elevator on the fourth floor. It unnerves him, so he ducks into the men's room to kill some time and to arm the bomb. Once he's in the visitor's gallery, Geoffroy places the bomb behind a concrete pillar. And then he just, he walks out. He calls in a warning to a local radio station. He also calls the stock exchange. Another powerful bomb blast rocks downtown Montreal. The force of the explosion shattered the outside wall of the 47-story tower. I could see other fellows were thrown right out of their booths who were directly under the blast. Ten people were taken to hospital, three had back injuries, the others suffered cuts, bruises, and shock. Bob Cote is at police headquarters when the call comes in. It's only a few blocks away, but it takes them ages to get there. There was so much confusion, ambulances, Fire trucks, we, we just could not move. The police department in those days had a fleet of ambulances, and I, I suppose all of them were here. 
and it, it, it looked like, like a war zone. The force of the bomb was so powerful, the walls buckled. And enormous concrete slabs on the outside of the building shook loose. One of them came down shortly after Bob Cote arrived at the scene. It was so thunderous, he thought it was a second bomb. I was faced with people full of blood. I had never seen that before. And we finally exceeded the scene of the bombing. Wow. Bob's telling us all of this from the warmth of our rental car. We're idling in the financial district. It's December in Montreal. Beautiful and clear, but cold. The scene is hard to square with the picture Bob is painting for us, not to mention the literal picture he's showing us. Bob's one of those rare cops who actually love to testify in court. He was always ready because he was a meticulous investigator, combing through wreckage to retrieve the tiniest clues. But this was not like any other scene. For one, there were people just wandering through it. How can you look for small fragments of a clock when you have dozens of people walking around, including policemen who had nothing to do there? We had a tremendous job to do of recovering enough evidence as we had to do in every scene of explosions to uh, be able to testify in court. So here it has taken us days, patient search among tons of rubble. Brokers on the 21st floor reported feeling the building shake and the floor lift. 27 people were injured, including a woman who lost her legs, but no one was killed. Pierre-Paul Geoffroy says that from the way the room was laid out, he hadn't realized that the explosion would cause as much damage as it did. He'd placed the bomb behind that pillar, thinking it would do less harm and protect people from the blast. In retrospect, he says, he's grateful nobody died. We press him on this point, and he admits to having mixed feelings about the bomb going off, about people being hurt. He was upset that the building hadn't been evacuated, but he was also happy he'd done it. The symbolism of blowing up the stock exchange, the ultimate symbol of capitalism, it was very powerful. After the bombing, there was a reward put up for the arrest of the responsible party. Geoffroy can't remember how much, 10 or 50, maybe 100 grand, he says. It was actually $61,000. For two weeks, he avoided capture. But there was the growing gallery of evidence. Funny little details, like the fact that Geoffroy placed a bomb in a shopping bag from his local grocery store. And then there were the more than 200 tips from people keen to get that cash reward. You put it all together, and police are closing in on their man. It's late the night of March 3rd, 1969, when three cops show up at Geoffroy's apartment à Rue Saint-Dominique. And when they come through the front door, there's Geoffroy, right in the middle of building a bomb. 
As it turns out, Bob Cote is in the middle of a meeting with an informant when he gets the call sometime after 11 p.m. By the time he gets to the apartment, Geoffroy has been taken away in handcuffs. Cote disarms the bomb and then turns his attention to a trunk that's just been pried open. Uh, at uh, approximately uh, 12.30 this morning, uh, a person was arrested in a house in Montreal. Next morning, the Montreal chief of police shares the discovery with the public. And the detectives found three bombs, 200 sticks of dynamite, 100 detonators. One of the bombs was a booby trap. There's more dynamite in a second trunk. The investigators found also literature, uh, communist literature, uh, from uh, Russia, Russia, China, Cuba, with uh, posters of Karl Marx, Che Guevara. There's also a handwritten list of bomb sites and copies of the FLQ's newsletter. The bombers had targeted French and English Canadians, Jewish businesses, provincial and federal buildings. Nobody seemed immune to their wrath. The discoveries seem to have left reporters and police confounded about the FLQ's motivations. So when we say FLQ, it it connotes uh, separatist terrorism, yet communist literature was found. Would you say that this is a a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorism? Well, I'm not ready to uh, comment on that. On March 5th, Montreal's daily, La Presse, would report on the discovery of a notebook with a list of about 100 names. According to police, Those people were seen regularly around town during protests. A number of them would be arrested. Other members of Geoffroy's group would escape to the U.S., then to Cuba. Today, the premier of Quebec saw the face of the enemy. A bearded young separatist arrested with a half-made bomb in his hand. After months of terror, 11 big blasts this year, a state of anger and confusion in the city, and worse, a sort of cynicism about the road ahead. The premier of Quebec ordered a public inquiry. We stand against terrorism and violence. And we do not think that in a democratic society, this is the way to help a case. Police were still trying to figure out who they had on their hands. If today's suspect turns out to be the ringleader or even the maker of the bombs, then the question of who's to blame becomes clear. The FLQ was supposedly crushed and its leaders jailed in June 1963. And that ended that series of bombings. At the police station, Geoffroy is greeted by two investigators. His interrogators leaned on him heavily for more names. Spilling would earn him a more lenient sentence, they said. But Geoffroy says he had nothing to lose, and his lawyer didn't think he'd get more than 10 years, whether he talked or not. So he opted to not rat on his friends. Instead, he took sole responsibility for 31 bombings. In his kitchen, Geoffroy opens a dossier for us. It's a record of his time with the FLQ, carefully curated by a group of supporters. At the back of the file is a list of those 31 bombings he claimed as his own. The stock exchange is here, the 7-Up factory, and then we get to Eaton's. This one, he says, wasn't his. 
though he told the judge he planned it. That was the other cell, the one on the south shore, he says. Geoffroy preferred to plant bombs at night when the risk to the public was minimal. But the Eaton store bombing was different. It happened during a Christmas parade on St. Catherine Street in Montreal's shopping district. There were innocent passers-by, kids, women. And that was a line he was not willing to cross, he says. He told the leader of the South Shore group that he didn't like it. Now, you may be wondering what exactly his point of principle was by drawing that line. He did, after all, drop a bomb in a visitor's gallery at the stock exchange in the afternoon when there were plenty of people around. The way he explains it, he had no choice. The stock exchange was only accessible during the day, and it was too big a symbol to pass up. Also, he says, he chose a time of day when it would be the least busy. But he was still willing to take the rap. To the court, it made no difference if he admitted to planting one or 31 bombs. The sentence would be the same. He also felt they were all equally responsible. So he wasn't going to cherry pick which bombs were his and which weren't. He wasn't trying to be a martyr. Besides, he says, it seemed pointless to try to protect his fellow FLQers. They'd been seen together so many times, he figured they'd probably be caught anyway. In court, Geoffroy pleaded guilty to all charges, much to the surprise of the judge, who asked him if he understood how serious the charges were. He did. He was proud of what he'd done, he said, but he wasn't prepared for the sentence. 124 life sentences. It was the longest sentence ever handed down in the British Commonwealth. Geoffroy flashed a victory sign when the judge had finished. See, all of these houses were built roughly at the same time in the, in the 1930s. M- many of them had wooden columns. I mean, the only one was retained, the columns. And I promised my wife, my late wife, that, that I would never get rid of Bob Cote still lives in the first house he bought with Pierrette almost 50 years ago. Pierrette grew up in a house just down the street, and when it was time to move in, they just wheeled her piano right across the road. In his living room, he gives us a tour of his photographs. We sit and chat over coffee for a while before Bob takes us downstairs to sift through his archives. Pierrette's old sewing room is now a little library. A wall of books, Montreal history, stories about the FLQ, wanted posters, bankers' boxes full of file folders perfectly organized. As his profile grew, Cote became a target himself. I was invited to my own funerals. I, I, I have the letter here, but it was not serious. Uh, it says, Robert Cote, police headquarters, Gestapo de Montréal. Low stamp, but it landed at police headquarters just the same. <laughs> Sergeant Cote dismantles the third bomb in 24 hours. 
I was young at one time. <laughs> How did you manage your nerves during all of that? Because it must have been, you had to be very focused, but you must have been terribly nervous. Well, the scenario was always the same. I had volunteered for the job, and when you called, well, you got to go. When you, re- you realize all of a sudden that you have your nose over a bomb, if you don't do nothing, it may detonate. So you might as well try to get out of there and, and do what you have to do. Then come back home, try to go back to sleep. <clears throat> Very difficult. So uh, a couple of times I said, no more, no more, no more. I had enough. Phone would ring a couple of days later. Here I go again. It began to take a toll. It must have been difficult for Pierrette. Yeah. On one, one event, 13th of December of 1968, on that particular night, Pierrette was pregnant. And uh, she was eight and a half months. We got a call. Whenever I left on a call, she would wait. She would wait for me. She would never go to bed. I wait. She would wait for me all the time. Got back here to do four in the morning. She typed the report. Then the following day, she has pains. We go to the hospital, and we she lost uh, we lost twin girls, twin girls, yeah. And uh, the doctor Payette attributed that to a state of nervousness, you know, which made sense. And every year, every year until her death, two thousand six. On the 13th of December, I would give her two roses for our, our daughters. They would, have, they would have been 50 last year. And somehow, even after that enormous loss, Bob carried on. And later, Bob will tell us that Pierrette did as well. She wanted to try again for a baby. And she said, I don't want to, she knew that that was a, in a very risky job. I said, I don't want to be left alone. I, I, want, I want to have a child. <laughs> so okay, so what had to be done was done, and uh, Pierre Richard was born uh, in July of '71. Bob and Pierrette had a son and then a daughter. She now lives upstairs with her own 19-year-old twins. And my wife always thought it was the providence who uh, had managed us to have, finally have twins. Yeah, that's life. It was only once he was locked up that Pierre-Paul Geoffroy finally realized what 124 life sentences meant. He says the first few weeks were hard. He was depressed. He tried to hide it. And then he started hoping that other FLQ members would come up with some plan to get him out. We asked him about the risks he took, the price he had to pay, and why he was willing to take it. When you're convinced of your ideas, he says, convinced that deep down you can make your dream happen, well, you act on it, no matter what the consequences. 
Thanks to the vagaries of sentencing and parole in Canada, a life sentence, well, even 12 life sentences, doesn't necessarily mean you're in prison for life. In the end, Geoffroy would be paroled after 12 years behind bars. That time in jail was hard, he says, but in a way, the transition to freedom was even harder. He'd studied to become a phys ed teacher, but he didn't actually graduate. There was a strike during his last semester and he refused to cross picket lines. For a while, he managed a house where young homeless people could stay and get back on their feet. He became an outreach worker for people who had spent much of their adult lives in jail. Then he ran an art gallery that showed work by inmates. At 75, he's now retired. But in the spring of 1970, Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, the FLQ's most prolific bomber, was in jail with 11 years between him and freedom. It felt as though the movement had stalled again. And there was a growing sense among members that it was time for new tactics. From his jail cell, FLQ author Pierre Vallière had written to a friend about the urgency for more dramatic action. He wrote, If you really want to get us out of here before independence comes, you'll have to take drastic steps and organize a spectacular operation, a political kidnapping, two influential members of the Quebec government or the Trudeau government, or maybe two judges who would only be released in return for our freedom. But some remaining members of the Geoffroy cell who had escaped were considering even darker possibilities. This is the voice of Palestine, the voice of the Palestine Liberation Organization. It's late May, and CBC reporter Pierre Nadeau is conducting interviews in the desert mountains of Jordan. It's for a documentary on Palestinian resistance. With his cameraman, he's at a training camp organized by a revolutionary Marxist group, the Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Their weapons are the finest in the world. The Russian or Czechoslovakian-made Kalashnikov, which the commandos call Klashenkov. And then Nadeau makes a discovery. Amongst the Fedayeen, two strangers, two young men from Canada, who feel that their province, Quebec, should separate from the rest of the country. He approaches them for an interview. Why are you here? We are here for training, military training, mostly training. In what purpose? purpose is to make a socialist revolution in Quebec first, and in North America second, because we understand that the, uh, the revolution in Quebec will never be finished if there's still imp- American imperialism. The two men hide their faces behind kafia, the traditional headscarf of the region. Your name is uh, Selim? Salim. And your name is? Salim. What, what is the signification of Salim? It means peace. What is your main goal when you go back to Quebec? Our main goal is to modify our military strategy instead of continue to bomb some uh, some place we will uh, make selective assassination of certain leader in Quebec selective assassination merci beaucoup vive la révolution socialiste québécoise et internationale vive l'internationalisme prolétarien vive la FLQ It was later learned that the pair was connected to the Geoffroy network. They'd avoided arrest by fleeing Canada. 
Shortly after that story aired, Nadeau was at a political event when he felt a tap on his shoulder. It was the deputy premier of Quebec, Pierre Laporte. He told Nadeau, you scared us so much with that report. Laporte was right to be scared. In just a few weeks, he would play a tragic role in the dark final chapter of the FLQ. That's coming up in Episode 6 of Recall, How to Start a Revolution. The series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Plourd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris Oak. Mixing by Graham McDonald. Our digital producer is Emily Cannell. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and our executive producer is Arif Naren. Thanks for listening. While I've got your ears, I want to tell you about another CBC podcast that I'm a fan of. It's called This Is Not a Drake Podcast, and it's hosted by Ty Harper. It's this fascinating dive into the cultural history of rap and hip-hop, R&B, and especially the role that Toronto played in the development of those things. And of course, Drake does feature in it, but you don't have to be a fan of Drake. You don't even have to be a fan of rap or hip-hop to get a lot out of this. It's a rich cultural history of a time and a place. So I encourage you to check that out. You can find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.